It's so good to be with you again this morning and minister the Word of God to you. Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12? We will be examining verses 12 through 19 this morning. And while you're turning there, may I say that my greatest burden as your pastor, teacher, is to help each of you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. I must say that with Paul, I I am in labor to see Christ formed in you. I long to see you more like him. I long to see you all experience the fullness of joy that's available to all who know and love Christ. But this can only happen if we know the truth and obey the truth. That's why Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Not sanctify them through experiences, not sanctify them with new revelations, but sanctify them in the truth. And I'm so thankful that you all long to know the truth and obey the truth. And I might also add that that could only happen when you submit yourselves to the systematic, in-depth preaching, teaching, and application of the Word of God. That's why the psalmist said, establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee. And that's certainly my desire for each of you. And that's why we come once again to the teaching of the word. So let's immerse ourselves in it. We come to this pinnacle of a worship service the exposition of the word, and we're looking at, as I said earlier, 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. Let me read the passage to you. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, And we were all made to drink one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Now, may I remind you that the church of Corinth was filled with Christians that were still heavily influenced by their culture which is the case, frankly, with all of us, whether we want to admit it or not. And they brought with them into the church key elements of the pagan mystery religions that they were accustomed to. You will remember we studied them. The, the, the frenzied hyper-emotionalism of ecstasia, as well as the divination and revelatory dreams and visions of enthusiasmos. So they were a very emotional people. They were easily excited, and they were also very naive and gullible. 
Paul even says they were puffed up, meaning they were arrogant. They were worldly, he tells us, more often ruled by the flesh than by the spirit. And they were also very divisive. They liked to separate themselves according to their favorite preacher. I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and so forth. Moreover, to make matters worse, they had witnessed many of the miraculous signs and wonders of the apostles, seeing how the Holy Spirit worked in their midst, especially the gift of languages, the gift of tongues. So in their flesh, many of them wanted that gift to draw attention to themselves. But there was a huge problem. As Paul has made it clear, it is the Holy Spirit, according to verse 11, who distributes to each one individually just as he wills. So in other words, what they had to learn is that not, is that not every Christian was supposed to have that particular gift. And secondly, no one is to try to acquire that which God had not given them. And yet that's what was going on. So what did they do? They didn't really get the actual gift of languages, many of them. So what they did is they came up with their counterfeit version of the gift of tongues. The same thing that we see in the charismatic and Pentecostal churches today. The nonsensical gibberish, the frenzied speech that mirrored their pagan mystery religions. By the way, as a footnote, just so that you will know, when we come to f chapter 14, Paul's going to go into greater detail about this whole issue of tongues. And there he will make a distinction between the actual true gift of languages versus the glossolalia, the, the ecstatic gibberish. And what he will do is he will use the singular tongue for the glossolalia, the, the ecstatic gibberish. But he will use the plural languages for the actual gift. You see, the counterfeit is singular. In Greek, it's glossa. Because you can't have various kinds of gibberish. There's no such thing as gibberishes. It's just all gibberish. But the Holy Spirit will use the plural tongues, glossas, when referring to the true gift of language. Because... There are many different languages. Well, the point here is that the Corinthians were misusing their gifts, but especially this gift of tongues. And so all of this produced chaos and disunity in the church. So in this section of Paul's letter, he's addressing these issues, pointing out the diversity of spiritual gifts, as well as the diversity of people in the church, and how God has made all of this diversity in such a way as to produce unity within the one body of Christ. He wants them to understand that the Holy Spirit's work and power is for the common good of the church, not for individual people. It's to promote oneness in the community of the redeemed. And therefore, each diverse member of the body of Christ must humbly recognize and rejoice in the particular gift or gifts that the Spirit has given them and use those gifts appropriately. And when that happens, the body functions properly. When it doesn't, the body becomes chaotic. 
Once again, Paul is going to use the, hum, the, the metaphor of the human body to illustrate these truths, which, by the way, he does 16 times just in this chapter, as well as many other times in other writings in the New Testament. So this morning, I've broken this down into four hopefully very simple categories. We're going to look at the unity, the creation, the filling, and the diversity of the body of Christ. The unity, the creation, the filling, and the diversity of the body of Christ. And I pray that this will be helpful to you in understanding these truths. They're, they're marvelous truths. They're God-glorifying truths. They are soul-exhilarating truths that we need to grab a hold of because the implications are profound. So first of all, let's look at the unity of the body of Christ that Paul addresses. In verse 12, he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now, we can all understand this illustration. Our human body, which is the most complex organism that God has created, simply cannot function unless all of the cells and the organs and the vessels and, and the nerves and the limbs work together in perfect harmony. And as soon as one part of the body becomes diseased or injured or removed, then the body suffers. And that's what he's saying here. That's why he closes verse 12 and saying, so also is Christ a reference to the church, the body of Christ, which, which, by the way, underscores the intimate union we have with Christ. Just, just parenthetically, I, I marvel at, at that enigmatic phrase, that, that mysterious phrase, in Christ, that Paul uses so frequently uh, to indicate the intimate relationship that the redeemed have with Christ, this union we have with Christ. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, but by his doing, you are in Christ. Can there be any clearer description of the unparalleled connection that we have with the Lord that we serve, who has saved us? You might say Christ is the very air that we breathe. Christ is, is the atmosphere in which we live. That's why I love the phrase that I remember hearing when I was a little boy, when my father first introduced me to Christ, he told me that, that you need to believe in Christ as your personal Savior. This is why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In 1 John 5.12, he who has the Son has the life. He, he also, we also read in 1 Corinthians 6.17, that the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So the point with all of this is even, even as there are diverse parts in the human body, so too there are diverse parts in the body of Christ. And because of all, this, all of this diversity, you have unity, you have functionality, you have efficiency. So what Paul is going to say here is embrace the diversity. Embrace the gift that you've been given. Recognize that gift. Use that gift. If, if we all had the same gift, the body couldn't function, right? That's Paul's point. A body with only one part is no body at all. 
So he begins by talking about, number one, the unity of the body of Christ. Secondly, he speaks of the creation of the body of Christ. And this gets a bit more technical, but it's, it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. In verse 13, he says, for by one spirit. Now, it's important that we translate this properly. In Hine Numiti, uh, it, it's, it's by or with one spirit. Now, catch this. It's not of the spirit. As we will see, it is Christ not the spirit that does the baptizing, which is contrary to what the charismatics and the Pentecostals teach. In fact, the best translation here is with one spirit. So it could be translated for with one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Now, first of all, let me explain. This is very important. This has absolutely nothing to do with water baptism. The term baptizo, which we translate in English as to baptize, simply means to immerse. You may recall in rebuking James and John, Jesus used the term figuratively in Matthew 20, verses 22 through 23, to refer to being immersed into trouble. Sometimes we might say, I'm, I'm immersed in my studies, or I'm immersed in this novel, or whatever. In Galatians 3.27, Paul used it to describe believers being immersed into Christ. He says this, For all of you who were baptized, or in other words, immersed into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And in Romans 6 and verse 3, Paul used it metaphorically to describe how believers are immersed into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that, that we are united, we are identified with him. There he says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? In other words, when we're immersed into Christ, this includes being identified with his death and his resurrection. So in our text here, in the first part of verse 13, Paul is advancing his argument concerning the oneness of the body of Christ. It's going to include Jews and Greeks, the slaves and, and free all alike are immersed into one body, the body of Christ. This spiritual organism that transcends any human distinctions. So this has nothing to do with water baptism. Water baptism involves being immersed into water, right? As a public testimony of an inward reality. That, that now we, at conversion... Uh, after, after we are converted, after we come to Christ, we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But, dear friends, water baptism has nothing to do with conversion. Moreover, it has nothing to do with the oneness of the redeemed community, which is at the heart of what Paul is talking about here. Paul is simply amplifying the unity of the body of Christ through its diversity and thereby underscoring the common agency and experience of one spirit and one body. So if I can put it this way, even as we can be immersed in water, so a believer is immersed spiritually into the one body of Christ. Moreover, again, this is very important, it is Christ, as we're going to see, not the spirit, 
who does the baptizing, contrary to the errant teachings of the Charismatics and the Pentecostals. We can see this illustrated at Pentecost. Remember in Acts 2, when Jesus poured forth the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of John the Baptist's prediction, as well as Jesus' own promise. You will recall the story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 11 and following, when John the Baptist tells us that it is Jesus Christ who would baptize, quote, with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he went on to explain that the baptism of fire is the judgment of hell, the burning of, quote, the chaff and the unquenchable fire. So Jesus is the judge that baptizes with fire. But he is also the Savior who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, as, as we see here. Jesus Christ, as the baptizer, immerses all believers into the body of Christ, quote, with one spirit, as we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. The spirit is the element, shall we say, in which we are baptized, placing us into the realm of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a fascinating footnote when you think about it. Jesus Christ baptizes both believers and unbelievers. Think about that. He will immerse every living soul into one of two places. One of two options. Believers receive baptism with the Holy Spirit and unbelievers receive baptism with fire. Now, with, res- with respect to Christ baptizing believers with the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised that he would do this in John 7. Beginning in verse 37, we read, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. By the way, it does not say were to seek, but they were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Christ creates his body, the church, by baptizing each believer with the Holy Spirit. Christ is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit is the element in which we are baptized. All believers receive this baptism with the Holy Spirit the moment they are saved. It's a work of God. In fact, it's virtually synonymous with salvation. So again, Christ is the baptizer, not the Holy Spirit. It was Christ who poured forth the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which, let's all confess, is a mystery beyond our comprehension. Absolutely unfathomable. It is Christ who places us into the body, the church, of which he is head, with one spirit, as Paul says. So the spirit is the element of baptism. We, we become people of the spirit, if I could put it that way. The baptism of Christ with the Holy Spirit places us into the sphere, into the atmosphere, into the environment of the spirit who indwells us the moment we are born again. Now, it's fascinating to think that it is the Holy Spirit, according to John 16, 8, that convicts the world of sin righteousness and judgment and at the moment of regeneration in other words the moment we are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life the moment we are born again it's the spirit who imparts new life eternal life 
We are born again, or we are born from above, as Jesus told uh, Nicodemus in John 3, verses 5 through 8. So it is the spirit that raises a person from spiritual death to give spiritual life. And at that instant, the Lord Jesus Christ places that new believer into the sphere of the spirit's person, presence, and power. That is how the church, the body of Christ, is formed, how it is created. And then suddenly, and we've, those of us who know Christ know this, we've experienced it. Suddenly, the unbelieving heart is made alive, it is, it is transformed, it, it is cleansed, it is renewed, as Ephesians 2.4 tells us. And the Spirit makes us new, new creations in, in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And, and then, miracle of all miracles, He inhabits every true believer. He permanently resides in the life of a new believer. And this, of course, refutes the charismatic Pentecostal heresy that asserts that a person could somehow be saved and yet not yet have received the Holy Spirit. It also refutes the idea of, of this one baptism in verse 13a as a reference to seeking some kind of post-conversion experience or status that can only be enjoyed by the spiritually elite. And sadly, you witness this constantly in charismatic services. Someone comes up to a stage. Of course, it's nice to have a big audience to, to, to really get the accolades. You know, what's going on here? And, and that fuels the superstition and the, and the power of suggestion. And then suddenly that person, quote, receives the Holy Spirit. It's often called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which, as I say, is an incorrect translation of the original language. And then this presumed baptism of the Holy Spirit is validated by dramatic phenomenon commonly referred to as being slain in the Spirit, accompanied by the gift of the speaking of tongues and so forth which is just ecstatic gibberish. It's not what was described in the early days of the church. And, of course, we've all seen this. People come up and they fall backwards on the floor and, and display bizarre symptoms of, of intoxication. They'll bark like a dog, uncontrollable laughter. They'll twitch and do all kinds of crazy things. But, beloved, I would submit to you that if Paul were saying that believers need some post-conversion experience of spirit filling. He would be undermining his entire argument and the emphasis of this whole section of Scripture because he's pleading here for unity that comes through diversity. He's saying, be content with the gift that you have. Don't seek the showy gifts, which will only produce a counterfeit and division in the church and so forth. And, and I might also add that Paul's constant use of the word one and the word all rules out any kind of theology that would categorize one group as being the spiritually elite within the church. I mean, that's what he's fighting against. On several occasions, I've had someone ask me, um, Dave, have, have you ever received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you've been asked that. And my answer is always, no, I have not, because there is no such thing. That always 
opens up the conversation, shall we say. Because biblically, Christ is the baptizer, not the spirit. And it is Christ's baptism with one spirit that gave me new life and placed me into the body of Christ the moment I was saved. Why would I want to receive something I already have? Well, yes, but let's go to Acts 8. What about the believers in Samaria in Acts 8 who did not receive the Holy Spirit until later? Remember when Peter and John came down and laid hands on them? Well, that's true. But that was an exception that was unique in the transitional stage of the church's beginning. You you will recall that the the Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews. They were hated. They were despised. And yet God saves them under the ministry of Philip. And this would have been absolutely inconceivable to the Jewish people. Jewish people have come to faith in Christ. They're now in the church and they're hearing, Samaritans are being saved? The Spirit is coming down on them like happened to us at Pentecost? Oh, we can't even believe that. So in order to establish unity in the church, God had to demonstrate to them that the same baptism with the Holy Spirit that occurred at Pentecost would also happen to the Samaritans. And so they were told to wait for the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you study that text, they were not told to seek the Holy Spirit. Once again, they were told to wait for it. So Peter and John were sent to see this for themselves. And then, as you read the text, they they ended up laying hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit, which replicated what happened at Pentecost and thereby proved to the Jews that Israel, who had been God's witness people, was now being temporarily replaced by the church made up of Jews and Gentiles and, yes, half-breed Samaritans that you hate, and even Old Testament saints who had now become New Testament believers. We see the same thing in Acts 10. There's a similar dynamic that took place. You will recall the story when, when Peter and a few other Jewish Christians were sent to witness what happened with Cornelius and his household when they came to faith in Christ. And, and then while they're there to witness all of this so they could go back and tell people, the Holy Spirit fell upon them in Peter's presence. But but those were, were transitional events at the birth of the church and should never be considered normative. As our text right here proves, those events occurred to indicate that the body was one, as we see here in verse 13. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And, of course, news of the Samaritans being added to the church and being filled with the Spirit would have, would have put all of this, this matter to rest. Dear Christian, please understand, regeneration and justification and the gift of the indwelling Spirit are all metals that make up the same coin called salvation. And how sad to watch people groping for something that they already have if they truly know Christ on some charismatic stage. Nowhere in Scripture can you find a single exhortation to seek some kind of post-conversion experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
much less being slain in the spirit and all of these other crazy things that you hear. Folks, if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you are not saved. I don't know how much clearer I can make this. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. That's not hard to understand. Then in verse 11, he goes on to explain, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16, remember Paul asked the believers in Corinth, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And there's no parentheses that says, unless you haven't, yet been slain by the Spirit and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. doesn't say anything like that. A few chapters later, while admonishing them to avoid sexual immorality, he again reminded them, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Then I think also of Galatians 3. Beginning in verse 3, Paul rebukes the Galatians. He says, are you so foolish? And then he makes this statement, having begun by the Spirit. That settles the matter right there. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, so then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So a few examples here from the New Testament. So back to our text now in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. So again, folks, this is how the body of Christ is created. But then he adds this, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. This, dear friends, is how the body of Christ is filled This is my third point in our little outline. We've seen the unity of the body of Christ, the creation of the body of Christ, and now the filling of the body of Christ. We were all made to drink of one spirit. This is an astounding reality. Think about this. When we were born again, the the Lord not only immerses us into his body, the church, this, this spiritual organism of which Christ is head, but he also fills us up with his spirit. You could put it this way. He saturates us with his spirit. The spirit enters our innermost being. He takes up permanent residence within us, whether we're Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So Paul is saying, yes, there's, there's going to be diversity, diversity in people, diversity in gifts, but this is what produces unity. It's a created by Christ and the filling of the Spirit. Now, notice he does not say some of us were made to drink some of the Spirit, but those people need to drink the full measure of the Spirit subsequent to conversion. You don't see any of that. You see, folks, there is no such thing as an unfinished, un- incomplete Christian. At salvation, we are all made to drink of one spirit. The spirit in whom we have now, we have been immersed is now in us. And without the spirit, frankly, there is no eternal life. 
because he is, Romans 8, 2, the spirit of life. 2 Peter 1, magnificent text, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. All right, right there is enough to say there's nothing missing here, right? There's nothing missing here. He's granted to us everything. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Once again, no parentheses, at least when you're finally slain in the Spirit and you receive the baptism of the Spirit. Now, we must understand that God does not save us in stages. God does not allocate his grace according to certain religious rituals that we need to do, like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's ridiculous. We know according to to John 3.34 that God, quote, gives the Spirit without measure. So Paul's point in this passage is is to make it clear that while there is diversity in people and spiritual gifts in the church, Christ himself makes sure that there is an inherent unity within his body, a unity that he has created by baptizing every believer into one body and making every believer drink of one spirit. Now, what is sad is to see how the enemy has distorted all of this in the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. They teach, as you know, a second work of grace that must take place after salvation. One historian offers some helpful history regarding this. He says, quote, the idea of the second blessing probably originated in the Middle Ages with the teaching that a person is saved when baptized, even though as an infant, and later receives the Holy Spirit at confirmation after coming of age. Sincere and otherwise biblical evangelicals modified the idea as a means for trying to enliven lifeless Christians. Because the church was lethargic, carnal, worldly, and fruitless, they sought to infuse vitality by encouraging believers to seek an additional work of God. But the problem has never been the insufficiency or incompleteness of God's work. Christ gives no salvation, but perfect salvation. And it is tragic that so many are seeking some triumphalistic experience of a, quote, deeper life or some formalized key to instant spirituality. When the Lord calls for obedience and trust in what has been given in his perfect work of salvation, Hebrews 10, 14. And sadly, you will often see in charismatic and Pentecostal circles or you will often hear them claim that to be spirit-filled, a spirit-filled Christian is to be a mature Christian. I've heard this so many times. And, of course, that is validated by the ecstatic experiences and, 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 and tongues and as they seek this second blessing. It's commonly referred to as a, quote, being slain in the spirit. And again, they fall back on the floor, they scream, they laugh, they bark, they twitch, they roll around. Uh, I, I've seen it before where the, the, the faith healer or the pastor will go like this and the whole congregation will fall. Hundreds of people laying around on the floor. One description presented it in a positive light. 
Quote, we asked the Holy Spirit to come and fill him again. Suddenly it happened. James fell back down to the floor, rolling and crying and clasping his hands over his face. The Holy Spirit had come in a mighty deluge of power, rushing into the wounded places and filling him with his glory. James laughed. He cried. His face flushed with glory and his body shook under the power of God. And when he finally got off the floor, like on the day of Pentecost, he was drunk with the Holy Spirit. End quote. And, of course, proof that that occurs is the speaking in tongues. But By the way, you, you can see these same manifestations um, among those who practice voodoo. Uh, I, I've seen it in, in Africa, in, in the tribes there, people that practice the occult. You see it in, the, in different sects in the Orient. You can go to South America, see the same thing. And by the way, there are parallels to this in cultic groups like the Mormons. You see the same thing. Joseph Smith did the same thing. Spoken tongues. You see, folks, wherever Satan has dominated and deceived people, you will witness these bizarre kinds of manifestations. And some more moderate charismatics are concerned about this because this continues to move forward with great power across the world. J. Lee Grady, the editor of Charisma magazine, offered this shocking critique. He said this, this phenomena can be and often is faked, and we should deplore the counterfeit. He went on to say, we must never use the anointing to manipulate a crowd. We must never fake God's power in order to make others feel we are anointed. By the way, he doesn't understand anointing, and and that's really bad theology, but that's what he's claiming here. If we do that, we take something holy and make it common and trivial, and as a result, holy fire becomes something else, a strange fire that does not have the power to sanctify. He goes on to say, this very kind of strange fire is spreading today. In some charismatic churches, people take the stage and throw imaginary, quote, fireballs of anointing at each other and then fall down, pretending to be slain by the globs of divine power. One young traveling preacher encourages people to inject themselves with pretend needles when they come to the altar so they can, quote, get high on Jesus. He actually compares being filled with the spirit to taking cocaine. He also puts a plastic figurine from a manger scene in his mouth and encourages people to, quote, smoke baby Jesus so they can experience, quote, Jehovah Wana, end quote, a reference to marijuana. This is more serious than trivial. This is more serious than trivializing the things of God. This is taking his name in vain. He goes on to say, I've been in other meetings where women were lying on the floor with their legs spread apart. They were making loud moaning noises and claiming that they were praying and, quote, birthing in the spirit as if God would lead them to do something so obscene in a public place. He says, God, help us. We have turned the holy fire of God into a circus sideshow. And naive Christians are buying this without realizing that such shenanigans are actually blasphemous, end quote. I remember having a long conversation with a very highly visible charismatic preacher. Uh, You would know him if I mentioned his name. And he did all of this type of thing, slaying people in the spirit. And and, and I remember saying to him, you know as well as I do that all all of that stuff is fake. All of that is phony. 
It's the power of suggestion, not the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really interesting what he said. He said, of course it's phony, but not to those who believe it's real. I remember I went and wrote that down. because That's an interesting statement, not to those who believe it's real. And he went on to say, look, it wakes them up spiritually and it makes them feel closer to God. Now tell me what is wrong with that. That was the attitude. Folks, this reminds me of 1 Timothy 4. Remember how Paul says that there's going to be false teachers that are going to fall away from the faith. And they're going to pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And, and by means of the hypocrisy of liars, they're, they're going to have their conscience seared as with a branding iron. They have no capacity to somehow have their conscience communicate to their mind and their will the things that are true. And they become, shall we say, religious sociopaths. By the way, when, when he says, what's wrong with that? I remember saying to him, well, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Jesus said that the Father seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, not in frenzied emotion and deception. That's what's wrong with it. Moreover, it dishonors the legitimate role of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I've counseled hundreds of folks over the years who have come out of these movements. And I know many of you have. In fact, I've heard from many of you as we've been going through this, thanking me for exposing this and, and telling your stories. And I've worked with numerous charismatic and Pentecostal pastors uh, who will admit that these things are phony. And, and many of them came out of it. Some of them felt like they couldn't, but often it's because they don't know any better. They get caught up in that environment, in that tradition. And then sometimes these, it's not just the power of, of suggestion, it's the power of some demon. Remember, Jesus warned that false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Jesus said, see, I have told you beforehand. Matthew 24, verse 24. So folks, please understand these counterfeits begin with an errant soteriology, an errant understanding of salvation. And then you add to that an errant pneumatology, in other words, an errant understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and you get this kind of chaos. Well, finally, having seen the unity, creation, and filling of the body of Christ, notice what Paul says in with respect to the diversity of the body of Christ. Now remember, he's rebuking these folks. They're, they're arrogant, immature, filled with jealousy, envious of others. All of this was divisive in the church. So he's trying to expose this, trying to teach them, trying to shepherd them. So he says in verse 14, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And this is a powerful illustration. Now think how this works in the church. I've seen it in this church. I've seen it in many churches. You have immature people at times who are arrogant. They're selfish. They're envious of other members. They're not being respected and appreciated in the way that they think they need to be. And so what do they do? Well, they see other people getting the spotlight that they want for themselves. 
They want to be on a particular stage in the church, receiving the affirmation and the applause that they secretly desire, so they begin to position themselves for a promotion. And in the case of the Corinthians, this included aligning themselves with their favorite preacher, teacher, and philosophical, political perspective, and and also you know, becoming more and more emotional and claiming special revelation, doing the ecstatic gibberish. Hey, look, look, I've got a gift too. Look, look what I can do. Look how wild and crazy I can be. Look at my frenzied worship. I can even speak in tongues. And all of this was just getting chaotic. But dear friends, the problem is an envious heart can never be satisfied. Joy only comes through humble obedience. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The envious person is never content with what God has given him or her. So they're never happy with their gift. They're never happy with their station in life or even in the church or their status within the church. They want to be noticed. They want to be affirmed. That becomes their all-consuming goal. Affirmation, by the way, is what makes Facebook work. As I say, if you were to take away the likes and all of this stuff at the bottom of it, the whole thing would fold up. I mean, people want to put their picture on there and have everybody say, whoa, you are so gorgeous. I mean, that's, that's how the human nature works. This is what was going on in the church. I've witnessed this a thousand times. Persons not being appreciated they want, so they become sour and sullen. They become petulant and pouty. They become hypervigilant of others and they begin to keep a record of wrongs and they begin to gossip and slander and somehow try to enlist others to join their cause. But Paul's reasoning here argues against all of this kind of selfishness, this kind of immaturity, this kind of envy that that leads people to, to discontentment and then to making up counterfeit spiritual gifts. And the implication here is that God just isn't fair. I deserve something different. I deserve better. I will not be overlooked. I will not be disrespected. I can't be happy being a foot. I want to be the eye or whatever in the body. I need a more prominent gift. I need a leading part in the play. I want a larger stage. I want brighter lights. I want more recognition. And if I can't get it, I'm going to create my own counterfeit gift. And if that doesn't work, I'm just going to leave the church. And Paul goes on to address this kind of envy. He says in verse 18, but now God has placed the members. Think about that. God has placed the members in his sovereign wisdom. He has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Now think about this. The infinitely wise creator that has raised us up from spiritual death to spiritual life, the one who has immersed us into the one body with the one spirit, the one who now indwells within every believer, this God in his perfect wisdom and unfailing love and infinite goodness has recreated us, he has equipped us, and he has placed us in the precise part of the body where we can function best for his glory. Now, who are we to say, you've made a mistake? Who are we to question that? 
We're all unique. We're all different, aren't we? I rejoice in that. I mean, you look around. None of us look alike. None of us think alike. We can't even agree on a lot of things, right? But one thing we can agree upon is the gospel, that we love Christ. And he's given us all different gifts. And when we all work together, the body is an amazing organism that gives glory to God and brings joy to us. That's why he says in verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? The answer is obvious. Folks, may I challenge you, be content with how God has gifted you. Don't be envious of others. And if you're petulant and pouty or sour and sullen, it's a pretty good indication that something's not right here. And as individual members of this body, we all have a place to serve. Make sure you're, you're serving in that place. You've all been equipped. We've all been equipped. We're all needed. Find that place, those places. Embrace those places. Celebrate them. And enjoy the marvelous blessings that God will lavish upon those who serve him. It just went through my mind, and I'm not going to elaborate on this. Isn't it crazy in light of all of these truths to think that you could lose your salvation. In light of all that God has done. Yeah, but you know, I just don't like this deal anymore. And I think I'm going to check out of the body and all of, I'm going to undo all. It's crazy, isn't it? That's why it's so important to know your theology. And rejoice in it. And live it out. For your good and for God's glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. I pray that they will bear much fruit in every heart. Thank you that you have placed us into your body in in a way that we cannot fathom and that we have been placed into the element, the sphere of your spirit and your spirit is within us. In fact, you tell us that the triune Godhead lives within us. Lord, these things are beyond our comprehension, but we celebrate them and we long for that day when our faith will become sight. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And if there be one here today that knows nothing of your saving grace, and I know there are some, I pray as I have a thousand times along with so many others that they will humble their hearts and see the horror of their sin and run to the cross and cry out for your mercy and grace and be saved this day. We commit that to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.